One of the highest values of this world is power. But typically when, when we think of power, we're thinking usually either of physical power or positional power. So, you know, physical power, like the Incredible Hulk. I love the Hulk, just pure strength and power, barbell training, fighting, grappling, you know, all, all those are ways to display our, our physical power. Or, like I said, the, the power of position. I heard someone say the other, the other day that Donald Trump was going to figure out a way to get a certain thing done because he's a man of power. And he wasn't just referring to the fact that he's president of the United States. He was a man of power long before that because of his, his influence, his money, his position. And now he's arguably the most powerful human being on the planet, which I guess either makes you smile or totally freaks you out. But either way, the point is this world, and often us, often we too, we value power. We're, we're attracted to physical and positional power. But what's interesting is historically... What has arguably been the most powerful force on the planet is not physical or positional power, but rather it's the tongue, the spoken or written word. Sure, the Nazis tore through Europe through the power of their military, but if you've studied World War II, you know their military machine and Germany as a whole was set on fire by the words of Hitler far before he became Fuhrer. Military leaders, NFL coaches, business executives today still study Sun Tzu's Art of War written 2,500 years ago to learn strategy. Sun Tzu's military victories are ancient history. His body has long since returned to dust, but he's still influencing the world today through his words. Now, our words, our tongues have unbelievable power. So if you want power, I'm here to tell you today, you have it in spades. Every single one of us do, regardless of our whatever physical or positional power we do or don't have. But as usual, with power, this power can be used for incredible good, or it can be used for indescribable evil. And we find James, the brother of Jesus, reminding us of just that in James chapter 3, as you're finding your way there, I, I just want to tell you straight out that today's probably going to be a little bit rough. We're all going to be called to the carpet through the power of God's Word, but I also hope it will be very practical and encouraging. That's certainly my goal this morning. So we're going to be focusing on the first 12 verses of James chapter 3, but as we do, it's important to understand we find this important section on the tongue sandwiched between two verses that really remind us what the theme of James as a whole is. Even though we're just looking at this section, we need to understand it within the context of James as a whole. And so these two verses that sandwich it, the last verse of chapter 2 and verse 13 in chapter 3, are going to provide some guidance for us along those lines. So because of that, I'm going to begin reading with the last verse of James chapter 2, verse 26, and I'll read through verse 13. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Behold, the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet 
It boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Neither can salt water produce fresh. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. The title of this sermon is Wise Speech versus Wicked Tongue for a very specific reason, because it reminds us this is a fight. This is a battle, and this is a battle we, I'm assuming, all can relate to all too well, whether we're a pastor who uses his tongue as a major part of his ministry in teaching the Word, or a Christian just simply trying to live life well. This is a battle for all of us, and that's what verses 1 and 2 say. James begins in verse 1, warning teachers to think twice about their aspirations to teach because their judgment is going to be stricter. Why? Well, because of their position of authority and and people deferring to them in their words or their interpretation of the word. Think about when you go to the doctor's office, you typically defer to their expertise. They're the expert, not you. That's why you're there. And so you're going to follow their their plan. It's the same thing with teachers. We often trust their teaching. Except, of course, doctors are are directing us in dealing with these bodies of dust, and then pastors are speaking about our eternal souls and matters of eternity. So that means the stakes really couldn't be higher for teachers of the Word. And this is no small matter in this church with the amount of uh, gifted men we have here to teach and many others who desire it. And if that's you, that's something to greatly consider and pray about, understanding the seriousness of, of what I'm doing right now. Kind of freaks me out. Freaks me out to say that out loud. But James doesn't camp out here. He quickly moves to verse 2 saying, the wicked tongue is not just something teachers need to watch out for, but every single Christian does as well. You know, we come across some sins in Scripture that you know some of us struggle with, others not. You know, you really struggle with that sin, me not so much. I really struggle with this sin, you not so much. This isn't one of those. This sin is universal. As verse 2 says, we all stumble in many ways, but only a perfect man does not stumble in word in what he says, and no one but Jesus is perfect. So that means that's all the rest of us. This is a horrible sin. This is a, a struggle each and every one of us can completely understand, probably on a daily basis, maybe sometimes more likely on an hourly basis. That's why I said it's important to understand this discussion on the tongue is sandwiched between two verses that remind us what the theme of the book of James as a whole is and how this section on the tongue fits into it. And the theme of James is to show what the character of true faith is. He says over and over in this book, true faith manifests itself in good works of obedience. If the work isn't there, the faith isn't there. 
That's what the, the last verse in chapter 2 says. If you say you have faith, but the works aren't there, your faith is dead. It isn't faith. It's a dead body without a spirit to animate it. And then he jumps into the horrors of the tongue in the first 12 verses of James. And then in verse 13, he circles back and reminds us again, if we are wise and truly understand the words of life, that is going to be shown by our works. So that really paints this entire discussion this morning. Faith without works is dead. It's no faith. And before any of us has a, has a chance to kind of think, oh, I've got this taken care of, I've got this licked, He hits us with the work that nails all of us, how we use our tongues. And with that, he calls all of us out. So you see the seriousness of this subject. You have immense power. The tongue, how are you using it? For Christ or for the devil? Is it animated by heaven or by hell? It's like James is saying, you say you have faith. Great, let's test that with a test. Pretty much everyone wants to avoid. Let's follow you around for a week and let's see what your tongue has to say about the matter. And with that, he gets into this incredible description of the wicked tongue beginning in verse 3. So as we consider what he says about this test of faith, we're going to be answering three questions about the tongue. What it is, what drives it, And what's at stake? So first, what is it? Well, it's small but powerful. And to make his point, the Spirit, writing through James, gives three illustrations. In verse 3, his first illustration is a bit in a horse's mouth. I don't know about you, but I love horses. I mean, there is nothing. I've surfed, snowboard, I've done all sorts of cool stuff. There, for me, there's nothing quite like being on the back of a horse in the middle of God's creation. It's just like nothing else. They're, they're such majestic creatures. They're so powerful. If you've been around horses, you know they're not robots. They very much have a mind of their own and certainly not a master horseman by any means. But I've been fortunate enough to spend some time on the back of a horse in, in recent years. But a number of years ago, I just I decided, you know, I kind of want to get familiar with horses. I want to get this skill. I want to kind of know what this is all about. And so I got hooked up to to ride a horse a few years back and um, went with the owner and we had a couple horses and kind of got to know the horse who, you know, just kind of uh, hanging out with them, saddle them up, didn't, hadn't put the bin in or anything yet, but just kind of spend a little time with the horse, get used to each other. And then we were walking out of the stables and I was clueless as to what horses were or did. And so we're, we're walking out and we're talking and pretty soon the horse just kind of starts nibbling on, on my forearm. And I'm like, is that normal? I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. So I just kind of keep walking. And then pretty soon he goes, oh, okay. This time he nibbles a little bit harder. And I'm just like, ah, am I supposed to like elbow him in the chops? I don't know what to do. So I just kind of kept walking. Just, okay, I guess we're okay. And that's when the horse realized, oh, okay, so you're not in charge. I'm in charge. So then he just stopped walking. So pretty soon I'm doing, you know, this number like this, like, come on, realizing I'm quickly going to get nowhere. The thing outweighs me by hundreds of pounds. If he doesn't want to go anywhere, he is not going to go anywhere. And thankfully the owner came over and kind of sorted the whole mess out. But interestingly, just a few minutes later, when we stuck a bit in this horse's mouth and I was handed the reins, I had pretty good control of this horse. Same horse, just as powerful, just as stubborn, but with some kicks to the chops and some confident reining, I could pretty much make this horse do just about anything I wanted it to do. I, with all my power, I couldn't do anything, but with this little bit in his mouth, I can make him do just about anything I wanted him to do. 
James says that's just like the tongue. It's the same thing with his second and third illustrations. In verses 4 and 5, just like a very small rudder can be used by a ship's pilot to guide a gigantic ship, just like a small flame from a cigarette can spark a forest fire that consumes thousands of acres, so too the tongue is small but has immense power. So like I said at the beginning, you have more power than you can imagine. And it's not because you're the CEO of your company or you can deadlift 500 pounds. It's because of that little thing in your mouth, the tongue. But in asking and answering what the tongue is, James doesn't just offer illustrations, but he explicitly states the works that often result from this small but powerful thing in our mouths. And none of it is pretty. He says in verse 5, it boasts of great things, often glorifying us and our accomplishments rather than glorifying God. Verse 6 says it's a world of iniquity. For example, the, the tongue is used to tear down others, to make others look and feel stupid, to use crass language, to tell dirty jokes, to be sarcastic, to gossip, and on and on. Verse 8 vividly says it's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. I mean, just think about that. Most of us, you know, get fired up about physical violence. You know, if you've ever seen someone or maybe you've experienced it yourself, you know, someone just getting it handed to them, just getting beat down. It, it is, it's hard to watch. It's, it's painful. Physical violence is horrible. We get that. But what we often forget is that our words are just, inflict just as much evil as physical violence. I, maybe we forget that sometimes because the wounds aren't quite as readily visible as they are from physical violence. But let's make no mistake, it is every bit as much an evil, in some cases we could argue, more so. And we have more ways than ever before in history to use this poison, to release the evil of our tongues and how we post or comments, uh, comment on blogs or, or social media. I see this constantly, I'm sure you do too. I regularly see venomous attacks and these sort of back and forths on Facebook, even by Christians. I, I see comments on Instagram directed toward people that if they were said face-to-face -face would probably result in this person getting socked in the face. But because you're just sitting there on your phone, you can just type it in and I guess it's okay. Our tongues are a restless evil with more avenues than ever before to have it unleashed. Building on that, verse 8 also says, man can't tame it. We can tame lions and elephants for entertainment, but we can't seem to tame the tongue. And finally, in answering what the tongue is, verses 9 through 12, James says, this small but powerful thing is bipolar. It's Jekyll and Hyde. One minute it's used to praise God, the next minute it's used to curse men made in the image of God. Trees don't produce two kinds of fruit, yet our tongues produce both praise and, cur and cursing. So what is the tongue? It's small but powerful. It boasts. It's a world of iniquity. It's a restless evil. It's a deadly poison. It can't be tamed by men. And it's bipolar. That's a pretty brutal list. So that's what it is. But our next question is, what drives it? And the answer straight up is, us. We do. 
Yes, James traces the source of the wicked tongue in verse 6 to hell, saying it's set on by, uh, set on fire by hell. That's certainly no small thing when we're using our tongues in the manner just described. We're literally using our tongues to please Satan. That's a pretty crazy statement. But let's not mistakenly then think that Satan is to blame. Just as Jesus said to the Pharisees who wanted to kill him in John 8.44, you are of your father the devil and you want to do, do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus said by hating him, not believing him, wanting to kill him, they were simply doing the work of their father Satan. But that didn't mean they weren't to blame They were judged for their unbelief. It's the same here in James. Yes, the wicked tongue is set on fire by hell. It's using it how Satan would desire. We should be shaken up by that fact. But we should be more shaken up by the fact that he isn't to blame. We are. We are ultimately responsible for the use of our tongues. That's what those illustrations say back in verse 3. The bits are put in the horse's mouth, but we, the one in charge of the bit, we're the one directing the horse. Verse 4 says, yes, a small rudder guides an entire ship, but the rudder is an inanimate object. It's inclination of the pilot in charge of the rudder that has ultimate responsibility for where the ship goes. We are responsible for our tongues, no one else. And that leads to our third question. What's at stake? You might say, why is this so serious? And the reason this is so serious is because this affects everything. Our entire walk with Christ is affected by this. This takes us back to the theme of James, the test of faith. Do our tongues pass the test of faith? Do they show that we are truly saved? This isn't just another sin. This is so serious because as verse 6 reminds us, our tongues defile the entire body and set on fire the course of our lives. Verse 2 says the same thing, just positively. Whoever is able to bridle the tongue is able to bridle the whole body as well. As illustrations James uses show, the tongue sets the course for and controls everything else. It's the tongue that's at the root of so many of the ways that we sin. That's why this is so serious. Yet it gets even more serious because, as we saw earlier, verse 8 says, point blank, no person can tame it. So this sounds hopeless. Uh, we, we've been brought to our knees. We see uh, the, the massiveness of the sin that we unleash with our tongues. We admit how often it's set on fire by hell. That makes us shudder. That hopefully makes us want to never, ever use our tongues in such a way again. But then we're told, and we know from personal experience, there's nothing we can do. None of us can ever actually successfully, completely and totally control our tongues. So this doesn't only sound hopeless, this is hopeless. I mean, right? This, this whole, All of us are, are failing this test of faith. Is that what this is going on? None of us are actually saved? I mean, what's the answer here? Well, we find the answer in verse 13, the other verse that sandwiches our discussion on the tongue. That verse says, those who are wise and understanding, those who have true faith, will show it by good works, in this case, how how we use our tongues. But it also says, our good works are driven by the gentleness of wisdom. And we know 
True wisdom is not found in us, it's not found in the world, it's not found in any other religion, but it is only found in God in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Christ as God does not simply have wisdom, but he is wisdom. It is Christ. Colossians 2.3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And so those of us who are in Christ through repentance and faith in Him as Lord and Savior, are given His wisdom as we are conformed more and more into His image, resulting in good works. So the answer to how we or anyone can control our words and pass this test of faith is by submitting and surrendering to the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ. With us, it is hopeless, but with Christ, He is our hope our only hope. And He's not just our hope in justification, our being declared righteous, our saved, our being saved, but He's also our hope in sanctification, our growing in His image, in this case, using our tongues as He would. It's Christ, the living Word, who sanctifies, sets right, transforms our tongues. But honestly, that's awesome, and it's true, but we're still kind of left asking, okay, but how? I mean, I assume we all believe that. I hope we do. Yet we all fail at this constantly. I know I sure do. So we can rightly say that our, ho- our only hope to control our words is the incarnate word all day long, and that's absolutely true. But how does that work out practically in our lives? Well, how it works practically is through dependent action. And what I mean by that is it's only Christ who does this work in us, yet one of the ways he does this work in us is through our actions. So we make choices, we act, yet this is always done in dependence on Christ. And there are four essential dependent actions we must consider to answer how this works out in our lives. The first is We must be saturated in the Word, the Bible. There's no way we can talk about controlling our words through the Word incarnate without beginning with being saturated in God's written Word. And the reason being, it's what consumes our minds that results in what comes out of our mouths. Remember in Matthew 15.11, Jesus said, Not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of his mouth that defiles the man. And when he was asked by Peter to explain what he meant, he said, The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, and so on. Sin begins in the thought life. What the mind is consumed with internally will result in external sin. In this case, how we use our tongues. So if we're spending most of our days consuming the things of the world, watching and listening to sinful things, or maybe even relatively innocuous things, but just things that are not governed by the Word of God, why would we be surprised then when our tongues repeat these same things? It's what our minds are saturated in. Obviously, this has always been the case, but with the ability to consume vile and worldly content and unbiblical worldviews through the ubiquitous screens in our lives, it is more important than ever before to battle that by being saturated in the Word. 
That's not to say we can't enjoy entertainment and we have to live our entire lives like monks just reading the Bible all day long. But it does mean we, we had better be monitoring what we're taking in and we need to be combating that by being saturated in the Word. Notice I keep saying saturated. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, the, the verse I wrote in the Bible that I gave to my kids is 1 Peter 2.2. 2. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. It's through the Bible we grow in our faith. But I love the analogy the Spirit through Peter uses here. A newborn babe. Many of you know exactly what this is referring to. If you have kids, you're well aware that newborns don't just eat every once in a while, once a week, once a day. At the beginning, at least, they pretty much eat every two to three hours around the clock. That's why new parents are always so exhausted. So you feed them their milk, and two to three hours later, they're screaming their heads off as if they have never eaten in their entire lives. Give me more milk. I have to have more milk. Give it to me right now. And so you feed them, and then two to three hours later, they're screaming their heads off as if they've never eaten in their entire lives. That's the picture Peter is giving us here. The Bible isn't something we just consume of a little bit here and there. It's something we are to desperately consume as much as possible every single day, multiple times a day if possible. That's why I say we need to be saturated in it. It's like the... Studies coming out that are saying sitting's the new smoking. Sitting is killing people. And the studies are saying that even if you work out intensely every day, you go do your crazy CrossFit Metcon, but then you spend the rest of the day sitting down, that workout's not enough to counter the effects of you sitting all day. So too, if we're consuming the world all day, every day, do you think three minutes of reading your Bible every once in a while is going to make a dent in that? It's not. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. They know life's busy, but guys, take time for this. Your life is dependent on it. This is, this is your lifeline. This is how you grow. And it doesn't only have to be reading the Bible. It should be that daily, but listen to good exegetical sermons on your drive-in to work. Listen to theologically rich Music, have lunch with a believer who's going to steer the conversation around the Word. Make this as much a part of your life as you can. In saying that, though, I, I just want to make clear, this is not just about having more knowledge, but it's about that knowledge becoming wisdom, as verse 13 says. says. And wisdom is the knowledge of the truth in Scripture being lived out in our lives. Wisdom is the knowledge of the truth in Scripture being lived out in our lives. So again, we're back to this test of faith that James writes about. To show our works through the gentleness of wisdom means the character of Christ is growing more and more in us, which happens as our minds are continually transformed by the Word of God into Christ, and then we live that Word out. So be saturated in the Word so that it takes you over renewing your mind in Christ as He works in you. The second dependent action to control the tongue is prayer. 
This is intentionally second to the Word because as the Word transforms and renews our minds, we are then enabled more and more to pray the mind of God rather than our own minds. And in this case, praying the mind of God means specifically praying that God would help you control your tongue. Pray at the beginning of your day and throughout your day that God would be in charge of your tongue. Memorize scriptures, sing hymns, saturate your mind in His Word, and then pray He would guide you in your words with your spouse, with your kids, with your colleagues at work, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your friends, the Starbucks employee, the person you bump into. Pray that wherever you go, your tongue would be used as Christ would use His. The third dependent action to control the tongue is local church fellowship, doing what we're doing right now. As you know, God didn't intend us to be Jason Bourne Christians out there doing this whole thing on our own. He commands us to be a contributing part of a healthy local church body, and there are many reasons for that, but a few are that we need encouragement, edification, and rebuke. We need to be in a relationship with other strong believers who can encourage us in our walk. We need mature believers who will be godly examples of how we should use our tongues so that less mature believers can follow them, imitate them. We need to be built up by the Word, by those who are put in charge of our souls. We need godly rebuke when we're misusing our tongues. The local church functions in a unique way in our lives, and as we actively participate in it, God uses it to help us control our tongues. The fourth dependent action to control our tongues is to think before you speak. That's extremely practical. Every parent ever has probably said those words, but this is where the rubber meets the road, and often, frankly, we don't always practice what we preach to our kids. Saturate yourself in the Word, pray constantly, actively participate in the church, but then use all of that to think before you speak. In God's power, take responsibility for your actions. Take every thought captive to Christ. Battle for purity in word. Make war on the wicked tongue in Christ's power. Take this as seriously as God takes this. Let me offer a a real-life example of this. My wife, Andrea, worked at the church I grew up in for a while when, when we were first married. And, and at, at that time, a, a pastor came on staff, a really nice guy, I don't know, maybe his late 30s, early 40s at that time, not sure, you know, nice wife and young family. But he, he had this very peculiar habit. When you talked with him and you asked him a question, Pretty much of any sort. I mean, not like a deep thing. Just you asked him a question, just about any question you can think of. He, he would make these long, he had a mustache, so it was awesome. He'd make these long pauses, like he was just in deep thought. And then finally he would give his answer. And, you know, my wife thinking this was a little strange, once she kind of got to know him a little bit, you know, throughout her day, multiple times, she'd be asking him questions, all these pauses. So once they kind of developed a relationship, she finally asked him, What's with the pause every time I ask you anything? And this was his answer. He said, you know, I have hurt so many people so many times in my life with my words. I have sinned so much with my words that a few years back I decided I was just going to pause, think, 
and pray before I opened up my mouth about just about anything. I thought that was one of the wisest things I had ever heard. In fact, it reminds me of Proverbs 10.19. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Again, we're back to wisdom. Now, I'm not suggesting we should institute a rule in this church saying everybody needs to pause five seconds before they speak. But this is very sound biblical wisdom, especially at the very least in times where you feel yourself becoming angry in a conversation. Maybe others in a conversation you're in are starting to kind of get loose with their lips about someone else, putting them down, gossiping. You can kind of join in on that. Maybe, uh, you know, there's kind of coarse joking like men so often do. It's easy to just kind of be one of the dudes and just kind of jump in on that. At the very least, in those situations, we would do well to stay our tongues and think very carefully in God's power what we might say, if anything at all. Let's make this a godly habit. Let's think before we speak and let God's word, which renews our minds, escape our tongues rather than the fires of hell. So, we've looked at what the tongue is. What drives it? What's at stake? We've talked about some practical ways to control the tongue. I want to finish by considering some of the positive implications of this. James is extremely clear about the negative implications. So I just want to finish with some of the positive implications. And certainly there are many, but we're going to conclude with three significant positive implications in our lives of wise speech conquering the wicked tongue. The first implication is our sanctification, our growing in the likeness of Christ. We've already touched on this. I've long been amazed by the first words the prophet Isaiah uttered during his vision in the throne room of of God in Isaiah chapter 6. In that chapter, he sees the, the seraphim, that special class of angels around God. They have wings over their eyes, not daring to look at the perfect Holy One. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then smoke fills the temple and everything begins to shake. But Isaiah is shaking more. And then in response to all of this, he says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I find that fascinating. He didn't say, oh, my, my lustful thoughts or, or my pride or my sinful anger. He said, I'm breaking apart from the inside out in the presence of God because my tongue is so evil and so is everyone else's around me. He said this, I believe, because he realized what we quoted Jesus saying earlier, that it's from the heart, the mind, that poisonous words come from. And his words indicated he was evil to the core and thus he couldn't be in God's presence. Like our text says, verse 6, the tongue corrupts the entire body, the entire person. This is true of all of us. All of us would have had the same reaction. We would want to flee as far from God as possible, just realizing the, the depth of our sinfulness that's so often on display in our tongues. Yet in verse 6, God sent a seraphim to touch his lips with a hot coal, saying his sins were forgiven, and praise God, were forgiven in Christ, which is the only way we could ever stand in the presence of God without breaking apart due to our sin. Yet, not only does Christ forgive our sins, but He sanctifies us. 
He tells us this is his will for our lives. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. You want to know what the will of God for your life is? It's your sanctification. You're growing in Christ-likeness, and he will accomplish this work in our lives. This is part of our salvation. He will accomplish this sanctification in our lives, like we said earlier, through dependent action. Christ will sanctify us and use his tongues for our glory. We will grow in Christ-likeness. Second implication of this is that we will lift others up, not tear them down. Think about the power of words in your life. Think about a time when someone just just made you float, just made you so full of confidence, made you feel good in, in a way that nothing else can by their encouraging you, by their just filling you up with godly words. And now think about the opposite. Think about times you've been brought to your lowest low by something someone said to you. I know for me, the worst pain I've ever been in has been the result of things people have said to me. I also know that I've rolled around in hot sweats in the middle of the night thinking about things I've said to other people, just wishing I could take it back. Why did I have to say that? Often to people I love the most, like my wife or kids, people I'm supposed to be a godly example to. Like James says in verse 10, these things ought not be. And only through the power of Christ and act of dependence on Him does He use our tongues to be used to lift up others. To, to be a people who always seem to have the right thing to say because we pause and we let God use our tongues as our minds are just saturated in His Word. People who are wise because we control our tongues and we use them to encourage rather than tearing down. May we be a church that exemplifies that. And the third and final implication is that our witness will increase. Listen to 1 Peter 3.15, familiar verse to many of us. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So we're told to sanctify Christ in our hearts, act of dependence. Through that, we're changed more and more into His image. But what's the result of that? Well, one of the major results is so that we are always ready to, to give a defense, to make a defense to everyone who asks to give an account for the hope that's in us. Notice what that says. People are asking about our lives. It's not just that we're going around telling people about Christ, although we should be doing that. But in this case, people are coming to us and asking us about the way we do life. What's different about you? Our country is dramatically changing as it grows more and more hostile to Christians and Christianity. And and because of that, in some ways, it's harder to witness because more and more societies is trying to shut us up. But here's an incredibly simple way to stand out from the world in a profound way and thus increase our witness as people say, just see the way we go about our lives, live our lives. This world grows crasser by the minute. Language is found on family TV comedy shows at prime time that would have only been on cable in the middle of the night when I was a kid. I, I hear women curse like dirty men used to a generation ago. The world loves to tear down and make other people look stupid. 
That's what the world so often does. But the good news in all of that is we have a tremendous opportunity to stand out like lights in the dark simply by using our tongues the opposite way the world does. To lift up, to encourage, to speak the truth in love, to utter gentle words of wisdom. And when we do, and we're asked why we're different, we tell them. As First Peter 3.15 says, it's because of the hope that's in us. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not because we're wonderful. Our tongues were just as vile as everyone else's. But when Christ redeemed us, He also redeemed our tongues. He redeemed our entire lives for His glory as His witnesses. We began today talking about power, how everyone here has immense power because of our tongues. We also have influence to use that power. Virtually everyone here has specific God-appointed influence in your lives. You have influence in your families or in your career or on your soccer team or amongst your friends. In addition, we all have God-given influence just generally in the world, like it says in 2 Corinthians 2.14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Everywhere we go, we're the aroma of Christ. We influence the world through Christ. That's a huge responsibility. We need to use it wisely, especially when it comes to our tongues. I love what Andrew Davis says about this in his book, um, An Infinite Journey. I, I think it's pretty much a perfect summation of everything we've studied. He says it better than I could. Here's what he says. A spiritually mature Christian speaks relatively few words, but those words are precious, Scripture-saturated, ministering grace to everyone who hears, He's learned how to filter out hurtful, corrupting patterns and to speak only words of grace. Though no Christian will ever do this perfectly, yet mature Christians show their maturity by the purity of their speech. You have unbelievable power in your tongue. Through Christ's power and the gentleness of wisdom found in Him our hope, Actively depend on Him to redeem your tongue for His glory. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we are so thankful for a study like this because it just reminds us no matter who we are, no matter where we are in our walk with You, we still desperately depend on You and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so once again, we just find ourselves on our faces before You. Just asking that you would fill us up with you so that our words can be used the way you would use your words. God, I just pray that this would be a church where this would be alive, that people in the world would see a slice of the kingdom here in the way we love one another and that that is exemplified in the way that we use our mouths. May everything we do and say be by you and for your glory. We cannot do this on our own, but we completely depend on you our King. We love you, our Lord, and we give our lives in this church to you. Amen.